Never before have we had such a blessed opportunity to build the more perfect union of our Founders' dreams. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. Twenty twenty has reminded us that America the Beautiful isn't all beautiful. From sea to shining sea, America has lost its moral compass today. On D Day, june sixth, nineteen forty four, the Allied death toll was four thousand four hundred and fourteen. But in twenty nineteen, domestic gun violence had killed that many Americans by the end of April. In the words of Dr. Sherbert Frazier, America is a co violent society. It celebrates mayhem while simultaneously condemning it. And the media has been planting these seeds of decay everywhere. Think about it. Kids watch murders on TV with their parents and then they get told to be kind at school and that killing is wrong. In fact, the average 18-year-old has witnessed 200,000 violent acts on TV and in movies, including 40,000 murders. The next generation has lost its moral compass. According to Barna Research, 80% of Americans today are deeply concerned about the moral condition of their country and the future of it. A poll taken in 1960 showed that 72% of Americans believed their government would do the right thing always or almost always. At the end of 2018, the percentage of that that statistic had plunged to just 19%. I want to tell you, a nation is in trouble when popularity is more important than purity, when the dollar is more important than decency, when entertainment is more important than ethics. A nation is in trouble when its legislators busy themselves with laws to allow people of different orientations to use the same bathroom while forbidding students to pray to God in school when you can go to jail for destroying the eggs of the bald eagle while open abortion is legalized, a nation is in trouble. In 1778, Samuel Adams, one of the founding fathers, he wrote, Religion and good morals are the only solid foundations of public liberty and happiness. And today these foundations are anything but solid. As Franklin would say in 1787, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And John Adams, the second U.S. president, he would agree because he said the principles of democracy are as easily destroyed as human nature is corrupted. America's moral fabric is falling apart, but so is ours. The whole world. Galatians 6 verse 7, the Bible says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Every day, by the choices you and I are making, we are sowing seed. And the fruit of our lives is the result of the seeds that we have sown. We cannot sow seeds of evil and reap righteousness. We cannot sow seeds of immorality and reap purity. We cannot sow seeds of self-indulgence and reap health. You can't sow seeds of error and reap the blessings of truth. You cannot ignore God's law without experiencing the consequences of that choice because we reap 
what we sow. If you sow a thought, you reap an act. And if you sow an act, you reap a habit. And if you sow a habit, well, you reap character. And by character, the Bible tells us our eternal destiny is determined. At the end of time, the choices you and I make matter a lot. In fact, come with me to Revelation chapter 14. And in verse 14, the Bible says this, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. John says, then I looked. I like that because John looks away from this world, from its chaos, from its heartache, and he sees a white cloud and the Son of Man. Thirty times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is called the Son of Man. So John sees Jesus. He sees him who ascended on a cloud into heaven in the book of Acts, descend on a cloud, wearing not a crown of thorns, but the Bible says he comes wearing a crown of glory. And notice he comes to reap a harvest. I continue reading in verses 15 and 16. The Bible says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Jesus. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. I don't want you to miss this because Jesus is coming again. That's the message of the Bible, and he is coming to reap a harvest from the earth. On his last trip to Jerusalem, before his crucifixion, the Bible says some Greeks came looking for Jesus because they wanted to invite him to come to their country so that he could share there. And when the disciples told Jesus about it, his heart thrilled. You know why? Because Jesus knew that these men represented people from all ages, from all lands, who would one day come to him through the sacrifice of himself. And this is why Jesus said these words in John 12, verse 24. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Like a grain of wheat Jesus would die and he would be buried, but he would also be resurrected and sprout forth, as it were, to new life on the third day. And like a grain of wheat, Jesus anticipated that his death would result in a harvest of people that he could save for all eternity. And Revelation 14, it pictures this magnificent harvest. But there are two harvests when Jesus comes, because if we keep reading, the Bible says this in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple. This is Revelation 14, verse 17. Came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and drew through it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now this is all very symbolic. There are two harvests of people at the end of time. Both harvests are ripe, but not both are good. The good grain is harvested from the earth, but the harvested grapes are thrown into a wine press where they are crushed. Friends, Revelation 14's urgent message is that every seed, every choice will be harvested. There's going to be a ripening of hate and evil and wickedness in this world before the end of time. As those who reject God by their choice come to reflect the image of their chosen master, and we will also see at the end of time a wonderful manifestation of the love purity, integrity, and compassion of Jesus reflected in the lives of his followers that has not been seen since the early church began. And I, just to remind you of how amazing these two harvests will be as they develop, there is a very 
epic situation at the end of time. Let me remind you, if the Bible ended in Revelation chapter 13, it would be the worst ending ever because this is what it says, Revelation 13 verse 15. We've been here several times in our series. The Bible says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. This, in Revelation 13, it is Satan's final, most successful effort to try and control the whole world. It's his dangerous attempt, if you will, at ripening a harvest for himself. And friends, whenever governments make laws on how people worship, they are actually attempting to remove your ability to be saved. You say, Sharissa, what do you mean? Friends, religious liberty means that we can choose to be saved. That's why I think the U.S. Bill of Rights is so great. We do not give to God through Caesar. We give to God and we respond to him through faith. But Satan is going to make worship of God, that response of faith, he's going to make it a crime worthy of death at the end of time. But praise God, the Bible doesn't end with Revelation 13 because as our world descends into chaos and as the tyranny of the old world is going to be revived again with the forming of an image to the beast in America, the Bible says that God is going to come through. He loves us too much to leave us to lies. There is a harvest time coming and God wants to empower you and to empower me to make the right choices as we head towards the end and the climax of human history. The book of Revelation helps us to make those right choices in our lives. In fact, Revelation chapter 14 contains three messages from the heart of God that help us to know what we should do, that help us respond to him in light of the attacks of Satan. These messages, if you will, they are preparing a people for the coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 14 verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Since the harvest is going to involve the world, God addresses this message to the world. And the angel's swift flight, don't miss it, he's not sitting on a rocking chair, his swift flight tells us that this message is carried with urgency. By the way, The word angel in the Greek means messenger. And in the New Testament, often human beings are called angels because they were sent by God to deliver a message. So what the Bible is saying here is these messages are going to be proclaimed by people who love God all over the world. I read on. The Bible says, saying with a loud voice, fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. The word for loud in this verse, it's the word megaphone, from which we get the word megaphone. There is no holding back in the giving of this message. In chapter 13, remember the beast has been saying, fear, glorify and worship me. But the angel says with a loud voice so all can hear it, Fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him who made, because God alone is worthy. This is God's truth going to the world. Verse 8 continues, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This message is not proclaimed with a loud voice, and we'll soon see why. But this speaking of Babylon, representing a global system that is against God's truth, against his people, spiritual Babylon at the end of time, God says, has made the entire world drunk with her teachings. Babylon is fallen because she has rejected the first angel's message. The second angel's message therefore exposes Satan's lies which have spread around the world. And verse 9 continues, Then a third angel followed them, saying, with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image 
and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. At the end of time, you need to know that worshipping the beast and his image has consequences. And so God is appealing to the world to wake up to the danger that is around them and to make a right choice for him. You see, beast and image worship, it means breaking God's law and receiving the mark of the beast either on your right hand by what you do or on your forehead by what you believe. Satan doesn't care where we receive that mark as long as we get it because he knows that the only way he can try to exalt himself above God is through attempting to change God's law. Obedience to a changed law honors the one who changed it. So, at the end of time, we can see real clear that obedience is a sign. It is a mark of allegiance. And I want you to know there is good news because God is going to have a people in this world who pledge their allegiance to him. Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 reads, There here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Not everyone's going to worship the beast and his image. Keeping God's law is going to be a distinguishing difference, the distinguishing difference between the worshippers of God and beast worshippers. In ancient Israel, the yearly harvests relied on two rainy seasons. The early rain, which fell in the autumn, watered the seed and helped them to germinate And then the latter rain would fall in the spring and it would ripen the grain ready for harvest. In the book of Joel, the prophet says this, in Joel chapter 2, verses 23, and then I want to skip on down and read verses 28 and 29. It says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. The King James says, moderately. And it continues, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. You know, centuries later, after Joel wrote these words, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, the Apostle Peter, he quoted these words and declared that Joel's prophetic words were being fulfilled. Because you see, Jesus' death had had a huge impact on the disciples. Before the cross, they were always fighting over who would be the greatest. But after the cross, they humbly knelt together in prayer, acknowledging that there was no one greater than God. The cross radically changed their lives. And after the cross, we see them together in the book of Acts. They gathered together in an upper room. They were repenting of their sins, committing their lives to sharing God's love. And the Bible says that God fills them with the Holy Spirit. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the early rain that was softening the ground for the sowing of gospel seed. And if you've never read the book of Acts, I encourage you, go Google it, find a Bible, read it, because it's exciting. 3,000 people were baptized in a single day in chapter 3. The next chapter, we find 5,000 more are added to their company. This was the result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as, as the message is preached and as the Holy Spirit was working on people's hearts. In fact, there are so many miracles and exciting stories in the book. I want to share just one. An angel told a man named Philip to chase down a chariot, and he did. When he did, he caught up to the chariot and found that there was an Ethiopian eunuch reading the scroll of Isaiah. Philip pointed him to Jesus. The man said, I want to be baptized. And after he baptized him, the Bible says that the Spirit of God teleported Philip 
to a Zotus. I mean, it's just amazing. It's a book of miracles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. And by the end of the book, the Christian community has swelled. It is so large and it all started with just 120 people praying for God to use them. You know, there have been 2,000 years of sowing the gospel seed as it has gone on television and missionaries and, and through literature around the world. And the Bible predicts that, guess what? A greater rain will come, just as the latter rain comes in ancient Israel to ripen the crops. God's work is not going to flicker like a candle and go out. No, remember, God gave the former rain moderately. There will be another Pentecost coming, and it's going to have ten times the power of that first Pentecost. And just as there are two harvests, at the end of time, it's very clear there are going to be two revivals also. Satan's going to attempt to counterfeit. When Revelation 13 talks about fire coming down from God out of heaven, it's talking about a counterfeit revival, which you're going to see happen in this world. And in America, the people are going to call for a union of church and state power that will end up oppressing God's people. But even now, Satan is seeking to condition the minds of millions to receive this counterfeit religious experience. So how are we going to be able to tell the difference? I want to encourage you to go to the book of Matthew, read it. Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23, where God says that his people are those who do his His will. The true baptism of the Holy Spirit is an immersion in the presence of God where the glory of God fills your heart and it changes your life. Unless you and I are saturating our hearts and minds with God's word right now, we'll be swept off our feet with Satan's false revival at the end of time because people are going to be more interested in feeling good than doing good and doing his will. There have been many revivals in history, American history included. In fact, if I share with you some stories, there was a revival in the British American colonies called the Great Awakening. happened between 1720 and 1770. And people became, at the time, they were so comfortable with their religious freedom that they had found in the New World that they stopped relying on God. But a young Dutch minister named Theodore, I'm not even going to attempt his last name. He left from America, he left for America in 1719 when he heard that there were four frontier Dutch congregations that needed a pastor. When he arrived, he started to preach passionately that religious performance without true conversion of heart was an abomination to God. And not many people liked him for this, but the young and the poor loved him. Young people gave their lives to God, and this began spreading a fire of revival, of religious awakening. George Whitfield, an English evangelist, he traveled seven times from England to America to preach to the colonies between 1738 and 1770. History tells us massive crowds of up to 30,000 gathered in open fields to hear him preach. And Whitfield would spend hours, sometimes entire nights in prayer before these meetings. This, this, the preaching of Whitfield so impacted society that Benjamin Franklin, One of the founding fathers, he wrote of this experience. He was so fascinated. He said, you could walk through the town at night and hear psalms sung in homes on every street. It was a revival. And some people even think that this revival inspired the American Revolution because it brought the colonies together under the banner of Christ and their motto in the Revolutionary War was no king but King Jesus. A second revival came in the 1800s in New England as circuit-riding preachers began to hold camp meetings in large tents and thousands of people would come. Presbyterian minister named Charles Finney and his friend Daniel Nash, they went together to share the gospel at these meetings. And while Finney would preach, Nash would be behind and he would pray and thousands committed themselves to Christ. In fact, at this very time, a Baptist farmer turned preacher named William Miller, he preached on the imminent return of Christ and thousands, tens of thousands joined what became known as the Millerite movement. And from this revival, the temperance movement and the anti-slavery movement, even the Underground Railroad began as well. These are great revivals in history, but guess what? They are small 
when we think of what is coming, the revival, the global revival that is not far away, because we're going to see New Testament Christianity come alive again. As this world grows darker, God's truth is going to shine brighter. And Revelation 18 verse 1 says this, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. There is a fourth angel that comes, and he comes and he adds to the three angels with a loud voice, and what was, what is God doing here? Friends, to meet the challenge of earth's final hour, God promises to pour out an abundance of his spirit in latter rain power. This earth will be lit up with the glory of God and of his true character. The gospel is going to spread like a wildfire around the world. And the three angels' messages, they are going to stir the hearts of millions to make a decision to follow Jesus. Thousands are going to share God's truth with their neighbors and find thousands of hearts ready to receive it, just like in the book of Acts. In fact, verse 4 of Revelation 18 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. This is God speaking. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Babylon is greater than most of us believe and is more deceptive than we can imagine. But God says, I have my people in Babylon. His call for them to evacuate is an invitation for them not to follow the crowd, but to follow Jesus, no turning back. Friends, the latter reign of the Holy Spirit, accompanying God's last call, it's going to mature and ripen a harvest for the coming of Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit prompts and empowers us to make right choices. But God does not make those choices for us. They're ours to make. The story is told of a farmer who surveyed Washington's camp during the Revolutionary War. And as he was watching, he heard the sound of a man in earnest prayer. He drew nearer to where the voice was coming from and discovered to his surprise it was General Washington on his knees, his cheeks wet with tears, and he was praying to God. Moved by this scene, this farmer rushed home and told his wife, George Washington will succeed. George Washington will succeed. The Americans will secure their independence. And she said, what makes you think so? And he said, I heard him pray in the woods today, and the Lord will surely hear his prayer. Friends, knowing God makes all the difference. Do you know him personally? America is ripe for revival again, and so is the rest of our world. Revivals of history have all had one thing in common. A movement of prayer born from a recognition of our desperate need for God. With a tanking economy and natural disasters and moral meltdown of society, could COVID-19 be the catalyst for prophecies predicted great final awakening? God's about to ripen and harvest and reap it. You know, as I've been studying this series, my heart has been stirring with a sense of patriotism for, patriotism for a country I'm not even a part of. As I have studied the history of the United States, I used to listen to the American anthem and think, why is it talking about bombs bursting in air? I always thought that was weird. But now that I understand the history of the song, I've listened to the anthem just recently and found myself fighting back tears. And I said to myself, Sharissa, get a grip. You're Australian. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. But that's when it hit me. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, these are the desires of every heart. And today God wants you to know that there is a better world coming where these liberties will never die. His government is good, a country whose king is the king of kings. I'm homesick for that country. How about you? The kingdoms of this world are temporary, which is why Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Is yours? If your allegiance is to Jesus. He has promised to safely conduct us from this old world to a new world where there will be no tyranny, no more pain, and no more death. Heaven will be the true land of the free and home of the brave. Today, God invites you to be a citizen of his kingdom. Will you accept his invitation? You can right now. There's a number on your screen. I invite you to call us or text us and let us know your decision. It's the best kingdom to be a part of. 
I'm so glad that you have joined us for this presentation in America and the end. But this is just the beginning. There is so much more to discover about what the Bible says about right now. So if you would like to know more about what the Bible says about the times that we live in today, then there's a number on your screen. I invite you to call us or text us on that number. Just text in more information and we would love to help you know more. We could connect you with some Bible study guides that would help you to study God's Word or perhaps you would even prefer someone to study the Bible with you to show you how to study the Bible. If that is your desire, then please call us or text us. Don't hesitate. We look forward to hearing from you. Hey, good evening and welcome back everyone to live Q&A with our America in the End speakers. Uh, so good to be back with you guys again and it's so good to have you guys here as well, uh, Trissa, Justin, and Lyle. Welcome back, Lyle. Uh, you, good to be back. Yeah. <laughs> we missed you. Wasn't the same I, I really missed you guys. Yeah. No, I missed, I missed, I missed the, our audience. Yeah, it was a bit sad, but we kind of struggled through it. So it was good. <laughs> I hear it was the best night ever. Oh, well. <laughs> I, I think that the person who said that was just saying that based on Trissa. Uh, she spoke so much. Like, she said so many great things, and it was another lady, so I think that's probably one of the reasons. But uh, it's really good to be here, and... Joking aside, tonight's message was uh, awesome and powerful and great, and I'm really excited to be able to uh, answer some questions from you guys, from YouTube and from Facebook, and um, and also just to elaborate more on this amazing topic tonight of that last message that God is is sending out to the world to counteract uh, what's happening uh, and how the evil forces are working around the world. Now, I'm just going to jump straight into the questions this evening because we've got a few that have already come in, um, and so uh, David is asking from YouTube, and I'm just going to read the question as he wrote it. What do you understand means receiving the mark in your hand or your forehead? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I assume he's talking about the mark of the beast, no doubt. Revelation chapter 13. Um, and in the Bible, the hand is a symbol of action. Uh, we, we do things with your hand. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Um, and so the Bible uses uh, the, the, the hand as a symbol of action. Um, the forehead is right in front of the frontal lobe of the brain, where psychologists today say, um, and scientists, neuroscientists say, it's the seat of morality, spirituality, and the will. So this is the part of our brain where we spiritually connect with God, for the most part, where our character is formed. Um, so, yeah, the mark being on the hand or the forehead symbolizes the two groups of people who will take the mark of the beast, Everyone who receives the mark of the beast at the end of time will either be those who are sincerely deceived into believing that it's the way to go, that it's God's truth. Um, and then there are those who just, their actions, they go along with it, even though they are not convinced. But because of the coercion, the force, they go along with it in uh, what they do. Can I just add one thing to that? And that is mm -hmm. that the book of Revelation is a book of contrast. There's yes. many different contrasts and the mark of the beast that Justin was just talking about is contrasted in the book of Revelation with the seal of God. And it's interesting to note the difference between the two. The seal is only received on the forehead. That's right. The mark can be received here or here. And that's simply because we're not saved by what we do, mm. <laughs> but we are saved by having a relationship with Jesus, which is a choice that I make in mm. my life. Amen. Excellent answer. Could, could, I, could I jump in on that of one as well? Of course you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just if we, if we look at the concept of the forehead and what God wants to place in our forehead, um, if we go back to the Old Testament, it helps us to understand more clearly exactly the nature of both the seal of God and the mark of the beast. So if you go back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5, you've got the Ten Commandments. It's repeated in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Then you turn over to chapter 6, and the Bible says this about the Ten Commandments. It says, You will teach them diligently, this is verse 7, to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And of course, um, God here is not talking about, you know, actually writing it out and tying it here and tying it, you know, around your head. Because if you go over to where this is repeated in chapter 11, it says, Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign on your hand that they will be as frontless between your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so the Bible is not talking about, okay, 
write it out on a piece of paper and stick it here or here. What God wants us to have in our mind is God's law. And it should be in our soul. It should be the very essence, the being of who we are, because this is all about love for God. And, of course, you know, the mark of the beast is the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got this, yeah, as Teresa said, the contrast between the seal of God and the mark of the beast. And so this is, you know, if, if the seal of God is something that is placed in our soul, then the mark of the beast is going to be something, as, something similar as well. This is not, you know, um, a barcode being stamped on someone's hand or in the middle of their forehead mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, it's a fantastic answer, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. I, we, if we get through our questions mm-hmm. in a timely enough fashion, I want to come back to this one mm-hmm. and talk about the seal of God and the mark of the beast because there's so much there. It's a very rich mm-hmm. biblical subject. Yeah. Uh, so David also followed up with another question, and he picked something out of your presentation, Charissa, so maybe we'll just get this, this question straight, give this question straight to you. He said, if church and state should be separate, why would prayers be mixed in state schools, mm-hmm. in the state schools. So you mentioned in your message that, yeah, uh, prayer in school is a bad thing now, mm. but it shouldn't be. Yeah. You seem to infer. Um, okay, so what I what I mean by that is not that is that that schools should not mandate prayer and they should not forbid prayer. I mm-hmm. think we're, what the Bible teaches is we should have the freedom to express ourselves and yeah. have our practice our faith. But yeah, I think. We would all have a problem if schools made us pray as well. Um, That's right. Yeah. You you wouldn't advocate for the school system saying, you children will pray and we're going to teach you to pray as a part of your curriculum. But there's nothing wrong with a public school right. allowing teachers to pray and students to pray and and whoever to pray, because that's the free exercise of religion. Mm. Liberty of conscience. It's liberty of conscience, that's Mm. right. You're making more of a moral commentary Mm. than like a prescriptive rule, like, Mm. hey, we should be praying in school. You're just saying, isn't it odd, on a moral level, that prayer is forbidden in schools, but all kinds of crazy immoral things are advocated for in schools. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Cool, all right, Uh, on to the next question. Um, Mozart has asked from YouTube, the people of God are made to be kings and priests in Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 5, verse 6, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. What should their attitude be at this time in the light of Jesus' ministration in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? So he said a lot there, but in essence, because Revelation says we're priests and kings, and because Jesus stands in the presence of God for us in uh, the sanctuary that the Bible talks about in heaven, how should we be acting in this world? There's a couple of verses that immediately come to my mind. One is where the Bible says that, okay, so the Bible says that we're priests and kings. The Bible also says that we are ambassadors. Mm. And as an ambassador is somebody who lives in a foreign country but represents the country that they are from. And so we're living in this world, which is a foreign country, but we are representatives of the government of heaven and we are you know, preparing to be kings and priests within the government of heaven. So let's live like that. Let's act like that's who we are. Yes. Absolutely. And there's, um, <clears throat> I was just looking for the reference, uh, but can't remember off the top of my head. You can Google it. I have no internet connection at the moment here. Um, but Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Mm. So if we're going to be like Christ, then when it says that we are to be kings and priests, it doesn't mean that we are to lord it over other people and they're like our subject. But if we're going to be like Christ, um, then we'll have a heart of, of a servant, mm. um, being willing to take the lowest place like Jesus was. And uh, this same heart of Christ will be replicated in all of his followers. And so this is the attitude. And when we get to heaven, still, when we're Technically, you know, like you mentioned in those verses in Revelation, kings and priests were ruling oh, and, and making decisions and looking at the judgment, aspects of the judgment during the thousand years the Bible says we'll be in heaven. Um, during that time, we're not going to be like, hey, don't forget to bring my water and don't forget the ice in it. <laughs> you know, like, we're not going to be lording it over each other and telling others what to do as if they're our servants, but we're going to have hearts of, of servants toward each other, toward Christ. That will be the atmosphere of heaven. And Christ, to answer your question directly, he wants that atmosphere to be um, pervading our homes uh, as Christians, as well as our churches, and that can trail over into our communities mm-hmm. and affect the world in an incredibly positive way. Yes. So we're good? 
Here we go. That's what we're here for. We're here, we're here to hear what you go guys have it. to say. So you're welcome to, to jump in. Well, for sure. Uh, and I'll just cut you off if I need to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. That's, thank you, Mozart. That's a great question. Uh, and I think your reference was Matthew 21. I'm pretty sure. Yes, I believe yes. so. That's yeah. right. So the masters of the Gentiles, Jesus says, Lord their mastership over those that they rule, but it should not be so among you. So the Bible saying that mm. we're to be kings and priests is not saying that we have the right to have dominion on this planet. In Daniel chapter 7, it says that Jesus gives the dominion of the kingdom over after the judgment at the end of time to those who love and follow him, uh, his saints. And so, uh, once again, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Uh, he didn't call us to be ruling over others as Christians in this mm. planet, but rather serving uh, the communities in the world around us. Yeah, um, yeah good answer, guys. Mm. Okay, so Leah from YouTube, uh, she is asking, how do those three angels' messages in... Uh, sorry, how could those three angels' messages be the everlasting gospel or good news? What's good news about warnings to not receive the mark and a message to fear God. Okay. To begin with, the Bible defines these three angels' messages as the everlasting gospel. Right. And Sharissa brought this out very, very clearly. Um, I think that we need to reiterate this because the Bible says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. Here you've got an angel he has the everlasting gospel to preach to those that live on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So the angel has the gospel. He's going to preach it. Saying is the very next word of the next verse. So the angel is now saying, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. And so this here, as soon as the angel starts to speak, what you are receiving is the everlasting gospel. Mm-hmm. And we need to, we need to see this very, very clearly. Now, I think there's a lot of good news here. I think the whole thing is good news. It's fantastic yeah. news. Best news ever. Yes. You know, if somebody was, if somebody, you know, if there's, if there's some terrible scam out there that is about to, you know, to, to really, you know, catch me up and destroy my life, mm-hmm. it's incredibly good news if somebody comes and tells me, don't do that. That's a scam. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all tried to, we've all had people who have tried to scam us from time to time and, it's always good when we find out, yeah, that's a scam, don't go there. That's right. So, you know, there's a massive scam that the devil is trying to pull off at the end of time. And what the angel is, or the three angels are saying right here is, okay, this is what you're going to be scammed with. This, 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 this. These are all scams. Mm-hmm. This is good news. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can Teresa, I, get I to it. Something? Yes, I can see it all over your face. <laughs> you ready to answer. In the presentation, we talked about the early rain, you know, beginning at Pentecost, and we're talking about the latter rain at the end of time as well. And it was interesting to me as I was studying the day of Pentecost, you can read Peter's sermon there in the book of Acts. It's right there, the most spiritual sermon in all the Bible. But part of that sermon included making the people that were present there aware that they had been deceived by the priests and the rulers as to the true identity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of the most spirit-filled sermon you know, in all wow. of history. Yeah. And so what's better, to be in deception and, you know, deceived? Yes. Or to know mm-hmm. the truth, as you've just brought out so well. Yeah, and I mean, Revelation 14, these three angels' messages, um, they give a contrast. Mm-hmm. The first one, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment, judgment has come. Worship him who made, the one who created, right? He's the creator. You don't have to believe you evolved from some big bang and millions of years of sludge evolving into higher organisms and you have no moral meaning to your existence. You have a creator God and uh, that's going to matter. His Sabbath matters at the end of time. Um, mm-hmm. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Well, the good news is the contrast of Babylon in Revelation is the new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's the city that will never vanish away. That's God's capital of the universe. And he's calling people out of Babylon into his church to prepare uh, for the coming of Jesus. And then last of all, don't take the mark of the beast is the warning. And the flip side of that, as as um, Violent Sharissa mentioned earlier, is that there's the seal of God as well. So the contrast to the mark of the beast is the seal of God. Secondly, like in every generation, the gospel has been in a certain form uh, relevant to that generation. Uh, we call it often as Bible students, present truth. And present truth in Noah's day was, there's a flood coming. Someone might have said, well, that's not a positive message. How is that a gospel message? 
Well, the good news is there's an ark. Get on the ark. That's where salvation is. Mm -hmm. And um, down through time, there's always been a present truth message. And the everlasting gospel in the context of uh, God's end time message of the, you know, Revelation 14 and the three angels message is, um, is that the three angels message of Revelation 14 in the, Mm. is the final context for, uh, the gospel message to be preached to the world. So it's a good news message. It's just, it's explaining the counterfeits and then the rest of Revelation paints the beautiful picture of, uh, the, the opposite of that, which is the ways of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I noticed too that in those three angels' messages, there is the concept of righteousness by faith in God alone. Uh, if you don't receive the mark of the beast, all earthly support is removed from you because you see in Revelation 13 that uh, whether you're rich, poor, free, bond, whatever your station in this world, you're going to receive that mark or else the whole world's going to turn against you. This mm-hmm. is a universal issue. Mm-hmm. So to not receive the mark of the beast at the end of time means you're going to have to completely, absolutely, totally trust in the saving power of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so there's righteousness by faith in this third angel's message where don't receive the mark of the beast, receive the seal of God. Receive that sign that represents all that God is. Don't receive that sign that represents all fallen man is. Yes. You know, don't, don't align yourself with the corruption of this world. So you have to trust. That's the gospel. Trusting totally in Jesus. And in the first angel's message, you have... Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this, but to add to what you said, that the Creator, when He made the world, He put the Sabbath as a sign. Mm-hmm. And that, that sign represents all that God is, and all that God has made, and all that God has made is mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, Satan and yeah. sin have ruined this planet. Mm-hmm. And any counterfeit Sabbath that man invents is going to represent man mm-hmm. in the fallen world that man has created. And so you accept that. It's righteousness by man. It's man's sign versus God's sign, which is righteousness by faith, which is the gospel, you know? And uh, if you're a person who's been victimized by this false religious system, you've been duped by this false religious system presented in Revelation 13, which is a misrepresentation of God. What good news is it? I mean, how good of a, a message, how, how much better news could you hear than that was not God? That was Babylon, and mm-hmm. it's fallen. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're a person who was sexually abused by some corrupt priest, and you've been twisted and warped by these paganized teachings that have been pawned off on the world as Christian teachings, right? Which we haven't gotten into in this series. That has assaulted your soul. That is war- Anyways, it's done harm to you. To hear a message from God saying all that you thought Christianity was, that wasn't Christianity. Mm. That was paganized Christianity. That was a fraud. Mm. That's good news. Mm. Fantastic news. It's great news. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, Let's get on. That's a great question, Leah. Thank you for that question. Um, I think I know who that Leah is. Um, So, Anthony Stallone is asking, are we in the tribulation? (laughs) Good question. With COVID, it sure felt like sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we've got running water. I don't know how much of a tribulation that is. Yeah. No, right. if, if this is the tribulation, I'm just going to say that it's a pretty good tribulation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of a, a bit of a loaded question, just in a sense, because there, and I don't know if this is you, um, Anthony, I don't know if this is you or not, uh, but <clears throat> many Christians believe in this idea, well, they're dispensationalist Christians who have a, a alternate view of, of Bible prophecy. They believe in, in a time of tribulation. They believe in a rapture. Um, but yeah, if you're asking, you know, is this the time of trouble that the Bible talks about that will exist before Jesus uh, returns? Uh, the answer is, thankfully, no. That time of trouble has not yet started. Um, we're, we've been talking a bit about it in some of the last messages and uh, in tonight's presentation. Uh, Sharissa covered it as well, but that time of trouble, that tribulation hasn't yet begun. Yeah, and I think just following up on the comment that I made a moment ago where I said, if we're in the tribulation right now, this is a pretty good tribulation. Yeah. There are parts of the world where there is tremendous tribulation mm-hmm. and there would be places right now where people would be experiencing bitter persecution against them because of their faith. And as a result of that, they would really feel like, yes, we're living in the tribulation. They would not be able to see it from our perspective. Mm. 
And yet the Bible says this in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Michael shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And here comes the good part. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. Mm-hmm. When the Bible talks about a time of trouble that is greater than any time of trouble that has ever existed on this mm-hmm. earth, even for Christians who are living in countries where they are being bitterly persecuted right now, it doesn't lie, it doesn't come up to this standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, no, we're not in the end time tribulation. That's right. In the, in, and to have a, a tribulation that's greater than any tribulation before, that's talking about scope and magnitude. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you're, you're never going to have, have seen in the history of the world uh, a tribulation that has had such great scope. It's been so universal. And I think that uh, is something to consider. Now, we always, I think, have to remember, and I'm just kind of throwing this out there to you guys as a comment, but kind of a question. Um, we always have to remember that God only tells us about difficulties that are ahead uh, because of the fact that he cares for us. Yeah. Right? right? So sometimes people suppose that preaching and teaching these warnings from Scripture is somehow a threat to people's peace and security and, and peace, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you're, you're, you're somehow doing harm to people by sharing with them that troubles are ahead, right? Mm-hmm. I've had people say that to me on many occasions. Do you guys have any comments or thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Now, I, we heard your illustration the other day <laughs> yeah, about, say, about a woman who's being impregnated and, you know, all that stuff. You have to watch the previous <laughs> Q&A. <laughs> yeah. what we're talking about. But... Any any short thoughts, short commentary you want to make on that, just for the audience here? Because Revelation shares some pretty intense stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's interesting that every time prophecy talks about the difficult time ahead for God's people, it never leaves God's people in that time. Mm. There's always a hope that's presented and there's that mm. Jesus, that you can go through this with Jesus. And I think, you know, anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. And when the tribulation hits... We will all know about it because <laughs> we won't have to ask. But in the meantime, um, what, what's better to not know that, as Lyle said, I don't think we can improve on that example. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, what's better to not yeah. know that there's a difficult time coming or to know so you can be prepared and, and know what's happening when it happens. Mm. I think we should say this too. For those who are worried about the tribulation, there is a psalm, a, a prophetic psalm, Psalms 91. Mm-hmm. Just go memorize it because it's all about the tribulation. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there'll be, you know, a thousand shall fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but no plague is coming near your dwelling place. Why? Because you are hiding under the shadow of the Almighty. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I meet people who are survivalists and they're like, oh, you know, we're going to go here, we're going to hide there, we're going to go there. And they've got all planned out what they're planning. There is no place you can hide on this planet mm-hmm. except under the shadow of the Almighty. And if you hide under the shadow of the Almighty, you have nothing to fear. That's Why true. would you be afraid if Jesus is on your side? And Jesus says, fear not those who can destroy the body, but afterwards mm-hmm. they cannot destroy the, the soul. And so... Yeah, we're all going to die at some point. And if my life is hidden with Christ in God, whatever. Mm. Mm. It's true. <laughs> Anybody else? Any thoughts? Just one Should last. Yeah, please. Hosea 4, verse 6, just the first line. God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So he wants us to know what's ahead so that we can prepare and know Jesus. Oh, today. Very good application. I want one, one more observation. Sure. Some people talk about... You know, they don't like the God of the Old Testament because there's, you know, too much wrath and anger. But they like the God of the New Testament. Well, this is the strongest. You know, Revelation 14 is the strongest language you find anywhere in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it is brought to us by the Apostle John, who whose reputation is being the Apostle whom Jesus loved. And he is the Apostle who talks more about love than any other Bible writer. Mm-hmm. And so here you've got the Bible writer who focuses on relationship with God and loving God more than anybody else. And when it comes to mm-hmm. sounding a warning, mm-hmm. he doesn't hold back. Mm-hmm. He states it how it is because that is an act of love. Totally. And this is an act That's of right. God's love. That's right. I, I served in the United States Navy and I went through boot camp there. And I was in the military at a time where uh, 
they could actually be rough on you and hard on you at that time. And when they'd wake you up, they'd like bang garbage cans and they'd scream at you and they'd uh, put you through some pretty difficult circumstances to kind of toughen you up, to prepare you. And I, I use that as a metaphor for, uh, for love, right? If, in fact, you're being prepared for difficult circumstances, mm-hmm. the most loving thing someone can do is what they did for us in boot camp. Mm-hmm. And if you were being trained to go into war, say, in Vietnam or World War II, and you're going to go into combat, actual combat, what would be the most loving message mm-hmm. that your um, you know, leaders, your sergeants, your boot camp commanders, what, what was the most loving message they could give you? They'd prepare you. This is a rough metaphor, but I think mm-hmm. it, it, it works because uh, love does not just manifest itself in one way, like Mm. in soft, assuring messages. Sometimes it's warnings and, hey, this is going to happen. And, you know, so I think that's... And I think, yeah, absolutely. And it's important to know about the coming crisis, but our focus shouldn't be on the crisis. It should be upon Christ. Mm. And Christ will carry us through the crisis. And it's walking with him now that prepares us to be able to make it through the crises ahead because uh, crisis doesn't deter form your character it doesn't determine your character it reveals your character mm-hmm. any major crisis doesn't determine your character but it just reveals when the pressure is on it's going to reveal what's already there mm-hmm. and so the way to be ready for the crises ahead is and the crisis ahead is to be walking with christ each day Amen. excellent okay so david spain you've asked a question here and i want to ask if you could maybe if you're still with us dave if you could maybe restate the question, because I'm not exactly sure. I think he's sure. meaning Revelation 14. I think he means 14. Yeah, 14. I'm pretty, I'm pretty it's, it's Revelation 14. Yeah. But even still, the question's a little, I'm not sure if I, I understand I got, it. I got it. You, you got, got it? it? Okay, yeah. yeah I got you it got too. Laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You go No, no, I think because I made a comment about it in the message. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Well, hey. Do you want to read the, the question? question the question, because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some of the questions come through here. What is the significance of the angel in Revelation 14, verse 8, mm-hmm. not speaking loudly. So the first angel okay. speaks with a loud voice. Mm-hmm. The third angel speaks with a loud voice. The second angel just speaks. That's right. Now, he doesn't speak with a loud voice because he doesn't need to because he has backup. Mm. <laughs> right? Watch this. He's got another angel backing him up, coming back with the same message, Revelation 18, Verse 1, here's now your fourth angel. Watch this. He says, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. The earth was lightened with his glory. Mm -hmm. So here this angel, he has great power. The whole earth is lightened with his glory. He cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, has become the habitation of devils, the hold of, uh, of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Mm -hmm. And so your second angel's message actually gets, well, I don't know whether we could say, but yeah, amplification, doesn't it? Mm. More than the others because that's a message that has a second go round. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Yeah, Sorry, Trish, did I no. steal your thunder on that one? You should have I just, loved how you said it. It was a great answer. No, thank you. <laughs> very good answer. Uh, praise God. That's a very biblical answer. So, okay, so Leah is in again from YouTube, and she's asked, how do I receive the latter rain? What a great question. Mm. Well, the verse that comes to mind, and there's a couple others, is in Acts chapter 5. And it just says here in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, it says, And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Mm. And it's interesting too, elsewhere in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Mm. So as I follow Jesus and as I... um love him as I respond to him in humility, recognize that he is Lord and I am his servant, then I will obey him. And if mm-hmm. I obey him, then the Holy Spirit, as, as I respond to his leadings, he brings conviction into my heart of sin. He shows me what is right and also he convicts me of judgment mm. um, so I can make right choices. Mm. Yeah, and to, to add on to that a little bit here, um, the picture in, in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. It's so beautiful. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus um, talks to his disciples. He teaches them the model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer often. And then he gives a parable about the significance of persisting in prayer. And then he gives an illustration where he says, um, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then a few verses later in Luke eleven thirteen. 13, 
after asking, would any of you good parents give your child uh, an egg or a scorpion if he asked for bread? Um, and obviously the answer is, of course not. Like, no good parent would ever do that. Um, and then Jesus, after this rhetorical question, says in verse 13, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Amen. And that word ask isn't just ask. And the words for ask, seek, and knock, it's actually a continual present. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the word should be translated for those who keep on asking Him. If you keep on asking God for the Holy Spirit, you'll recognize the areas in your life where He's leading you to obey Him, to live up to His holy standard out of gratitude for His salvation. Mm-hmm. If you continue to ask and ask and ask, um, and surrender your heart to him. He'll fill you with his spirit because he's eager to fill us uh, with his spirit, which is basically what the latter rain is. Amen. Excellent answer, guys. Thank you so much. Um, okay, just a couple more questions here. Well, just one more question for the night, and uh, we're going to end uh, at this. Uh, before, we, before I get to this question, I just wanted to say, uh, there is a number on your screen that will just be popped up here in just a few seconds. We always usually remind you guys, if you're, enjoying what you're hearing if you are being blessed by this discussion and if you've really enjoyed the presentations each evening we just want to invite you to either text us or call the number on the screen and just say hey i want bible studies or i'm really interested in receiving more information i'd like the free book offer of the great controversy we have been offering this book every evening it uh, talks about revelation 12 13 and 14 in detail and more than that gives uh, a beautiful um just it teaches beautifully about the history of the Christian church, its rise, its fall, and its eventual triumph at the end of time. And so um, we'd love to give this book to you for free, send it out in the mail, or deliver it to you if you're, if you're nearby us here in Newcastle. So, um, yeah, let's get to the last question from Ryan. Ryan says from Facebook, It's interesting that those who worship the beast take part in the torment it receives. I've heard many people talk about God's judgment. And my question is, what is the difference between torment and torture? And why does the smoke of their torment ascend forever and ever? It's hmm. a good question and a tough one for our last one because there's so, so much <laughs> yeah. we can say. Okay, how much time we got on this one? We don't have to answer it comprehensively. We yeah. can just, you know, just answer it to the best of your sure. ability. And then we can, nothing stops us from diving in tomorrow night if we if we need to i'd say the one sentence answer to the first question what's the difference between torment and torture um torture is physical torment is until it's mental and so it's not just yeah it's it's not just physical torture that the lost will experience but the torment of the realization that they lost eternity mm-hmm. know. you know torment too is something that you can feel and experience uh, that's a consequence of something. So whenever you use the word torture, what you mean is is that a person's being put in a position where they're being uh, given a physical punishment. Not even, sorry, a person is is doing something to another person for the sole purpose of causing misery and anguish. So some cruel, terrible tyrant takes you and locks you up and does terrible things to you physically. They're torturing you. Now, a person could be tormented by a just punishment. Mm-hmm. Okay? So whenever t- people try to conflate these two terms, torment and torture, they're, they're kind of, pl- they're doing something with language that I would not do with language, that I don't think language uh, should be done, you know, used that way. Um, so, yes, people experience torment because they're receiving a just penalty for their deeds. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and they're just, it's, it's, they're receiving justice. Uh, the law of God is being executed. And that's fine. That's not torture. That's not God torturing anyone. That's people being tormented by the just uh, reward for their actions. That's what I'd mm. say. There was a comment about the smoke ascending forever. How can it ascend forever and ever? And why does the smoke of their torment ascend forever and ever? I think that it's significant that the Bible says that it's just smoke. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only the smoke. That's all that's left. There's nothing else left. Mm. And that smoke is the memory of what took place. Mm-hmm. You see, if the memory of what took place here on planet Earth for, you know, the 6,000 years, whatever, that we've been here, if that memory disappears, 
then there is the danger that sin could come back again. It's the memory of what happens here mm-hmm. that ensures that sin will never, ever, ever exist again because mm. no one will ever want to want to bring planet Earth back into existence again That's right. when you're living in a perfect universe. You know, the Bible says that, that, that um, you know, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Mm. And the, the smoke then ascends forever and ever. There's nothing but smoke left. Mm-hmm. That's the significant thing about I see about the smoke. Yes. You know, the Greek word there translated forever and ever is not is actually, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it correctly, but it's aeon, mm-hmm. which is where we get our word eon from. Mm-hmm. And a third of the time that that Greek word is used in the New Testament, it's translated not for forever and ever, it's translated in age. Mm-hmm. It, it, so so yes. you can just as justify, you, you can translate that Greek word in Revelation 14, 9 through 11, or I think it's in verse 11, as the smoke of their torment ascends for an age and an age, an unspecified period of time mm. that is not necessarily speaking of eternal, never-ending time frame. Mm. The, the other thing that's, yeah, sorry, just to, to add on to that, we use the word eons in exactly the same way today. You know, the, as you pointed out, there are multitude of references in the Bible where eons has an end. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, but we use the word the same way today. When we're speaking conversationally, it's like, you know, let's say that uh, there's a blazing hot day and we're waiting for, let's say I'm waiting for you, Matt. Let's say I'm waiting for Matt standing out here on the street corner. He said, I'm going to come and pick you up at five o'clock. The sun is beating on my head. I'm dripping with sweat. I can't go and stand in the shade because I'll miss Matt if he doesn't turn up. Eventually turns up, jump in the car, ice cold air con, it's like, Ah, they're waiting out there for eons. We say it today in exactly the same context as you often find it in the Bible. That's great. So, guys, we're out of time, and I want to just give you one last opportunity, final words, final thoughts, final sentiments. If you don't have any, that's fine. We can just uh, say goodnight to our our guests and go. But uh, closing words, remarks about tonight's presentation or anything that we've covered? I would just so say, far? I just say we touched on the three angels' messages tonight in Revelation 14. And if you've never studied them out like thoroughly and pref- prayerfully and carefully, and I'd really encourage you to, to do that because it is a rich study. We've only just skinned the surface and there's so much more to be found. Mm-hmm. I would encourage yeah. that. Absolutely. Okay, so Zion, or sorry, not Zion, uh, Tari, we didn't get to your question, but I promise you if you tune in tomorrow night, we'll get to it. Um, God bless you guys. Have a great evening. We look forward to catching up with you tomorrow night for our last presentation in America in the end. God bless you. Good night. We'll see you soon.